Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the International Biodynamic Guild podcast. I am your host, Will Bratton, and today we're joined by Andre Tranquilini. Andre is a biodynamic farmer, consultant, and teacher. He has been the estate manager at Waltham Place, a 220-acre biodynamic estate in Berkshire since 2018. Andre has worked extensively as a market gardener, outdoor classroom teacher, and was a founding member of the seed company Living Seeds in Portugal. Born in Brazil, Andre has had the opportunity to work and manage farms in his homeland of Brazil, as well as Portugal and the UK. He's traveled widely, teaching workshops and lecturing on biodynamic agriculture. Andre is married to Sophie, and they have three children, Kai, Yasmin, and Luca. In his spare time, Andre enjoys printmaking and kite flying. You can find Andre and Waltham Place at walthamplace.com, spelled W-A-L-T-H-A-M place.com. Andre, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Will. Thanks for having me. So tell us, how and when did you find biodynamics? I found biodynamics um, 20 plus years ago at Emerson College. Um, At the time when I moved to England, when I first moved to England, I had just left Brazil. I used to be an artist, a a printmaker, and I used to think, you know, that that choice of career allowed me some degree of independence and and, and creativity. Um, But it was following one of financial crises in Brazil that I really realized that actually, in order to be more independent, I needed to, to uh, grow my own food. So that was my initial motivation. But by bre- being brought up in Brazil, already have been open to this relationship, or spiritual relationship to the natural world. Um, I think biodynamics were very fitting um, to, to, to my view of how I wanted to, to produce food. Um, so I came to Emerson College in England. Uh, my original intention was to spend six months there and learn a little bit about biodynamics and that 20 plus years and I'm already still here. Tell us more about the Living Seed Company in Portugal. So Living Seeds, um, following my time at Emerson, I went to, to a Rudolf Steiner school in Devon. So we had a farm there. We had a beautiful, beautiful farm within the school. And I was an outdoor teacher. Um, so part of my challenge uh, at the school was working with a big uh, age range. So I was teaching children from class one to, to, to class 12. And, and, and especially for the older students, I was really interested in finding something um, that they could engage, uh, that they could be part of the design, um, and they could engage, produce something, and, and have actual, an actual product something that is quantifiable, that the impact was measurable. And seed saving is, is really what, what I, I felt was the right thing to, to work with the teenagers as, as a project, you know, to, to create a seed bank, to produce seeds from the school. We had a small garden at the time uh, within, within the farm, a small market garden, so we could not feed the whole community, but potentially could produce a lot of seed that would have an impact on the community. Um, so more and more, as I was developing that work with the young people, I, 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 I fell in love with seed production. I met a, a German investor, Stefan Dubling, who, who was at the time working with uh, our partners in Biggenheimer Sattgut and, and identified the need for a seed company in, in the Mediterranean um, climate. Uh, and, and yeah, he brought over the idea and, and, and we became partners and with a founding team of 10 people, we, we created that seed company in Portugal that's still going very strong. 
but for personal reasons, uh, we decided to, to, to come back to England. That, that's been four years ago. And then, so you, you moved on to, to Waltham Place. Um, tell us about Waltham Place. I was looking at the, the history online. It's got a fascinating um, history. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, no, Waltham is an incredible place. Uh, it's, it's a really old property. Uh, its first register is 948 AD, which is Doomsday Book, you know, so that's the first record. But we are aware of, of uh, much more history to that. Uh, originally, the property was given to a thane uh, by a king, which was to create an army to, to fight Viking invasions. So there's also evidence of Roman activity on the state, has been a royal hunting state as well in the past, and went uh, into, into private ownership, has been a monastery, um, so has been various things. And for 120 years now have been uh, owned by the Oppenheimer family, a South African family, and um, since 84 by the current generation. And the first thing they did was to, to convert the, the, the state to, to organic agriculture in, uh, already in 84. And then in early 2000s, the biodynamic certification came about. So we still hold both certifications in the UK. The Soil Association certifies for organic and, and um, Demeter UK for, for biodynamic. So we have both. We hold both. And we have a wide range of activity on the state. It's a proper mixed farm. So we have livestock. There are, we're working at the moment with rare breeds. We have Jersey cows. We start in a micro dairy. A lot of people say, but are Jersey's rare breed? We work with the original population bloodline that not even in the Isle of Jersey is, 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 is that present anymore. Um, we also work with Castle Moret milk sheep from, from Scotland. Uh, we have Tamworth pigs, which is the sort of first uh, British uh, pig breed. Um, chickens, we have a market garden, um, a small kitchen garden as well. Uh, traditional orchards, so we have uh, 40 plus uh, traditional apple varieties in our orchards. Um, ornamental gardens, we have naturalistic gardens, so around seven acres, uh, 40 acres of woodland. So it's a proper, it's a proper mixed farm. Um, our visitors, they can really be inspired by the beauty of the place, but the age which is really represented in, in the ancient trees on site. You know, there are reminiscences from the Great Windsor Forest, and there's some incredible oaks and, and, and other species on site. Beautiful. And you also uh, grow some ancient grains and, and do the, uh, the log uh, hives? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. We are producing at the moment um, 10 acres, more or less, of, of, of ancient grains each year. So we have, we're producing einkorn. Um, we are also producing a mix of spelt and, and emmer and black emmer. So that's a nice mix. And we have been trying for the last four year, years to establish a land race population of wheat. So the starting point for that was approximately 66 different wheat populations. And now on year four, you know, there's not quite as much variation. We notice that this is changing a little bit. Uh, and the whole aim is to is to have our own land race population with as much genetic diversity as possible. Uh, we feel that is extremely important in this day and age, you know, with all the different pressures and challenges that we're seeing that we don't put all our eggs into in one basket and we spread the risk and, and we work with as much diversity as possible. 
which um, is also represented on a strong conservation ethos in terms of the management of the state. Um, so we, we are constantly monitoring wildlife, uh, working with local amateur uh, and amateur experts and as well some national uh, organizations um, to, to create a baseline and inventory what is actually living uh, on the state and, and uh, allowing that also to inform our management techniques. Um, so yeah, this is the numbers are, are coming up uh, are absolutely incredible. And part of that conservation ethos, um, the log hives, um, which we hold courses on site. Uh, we, we hold a very dear relationship with Matt Somerville, who designed them in the first place. And he, he comes to the state every year. We hold courses. We have about seven log hives. And, and what I find amazing about them, that they made the bees so visible on the state, you know, because they are a piece of art. You know, they're so beautiful. They're very functional as well. Very um, astute design, simple nature observation that have created um, these beautiful hives. And, and as I was saying, made the bees really visible, strengthening the wild bee populations on site. Uh, and alongside that, we've been looking as well in terms of bee identification. So just to give you a flavor, over the last uh, three years, more than 56 species of, of, of bees were ID on the, on the state. But the numbers of moths, for instance, are more than 600 different species, just to give you an idea. How many different species of bees? Uh, 56. That's phenomenal. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And if you were consider, to, to consider, you know, that uh, some of those species to identify, they are really quite a lot of work, you know. We have um, uh, the, the expert that is working with us. Sometimes he spends months looking at certain uh, a bee under a microscope to be able to ID. So it is, it is really quite exciting to see that result coming through. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and speaking of, of those uh, log hive courses, I was looking at some of the other courses you offer. Uh, I see you've got Sacred Geometry of Flowers coming up next weekend on June 4th. Yeah. Um, Celebration of Copper Tools. Looking forward to talking about that. You've got that course on July 16th. Uh, can you talk us uh, through some of the courses you offer there? Absolutely. Um, the courses, in, in a way, uh, they really meet our, one of our key objectives. Uh, I, I always like to, to, to say that one of our main products is inspiration. That's really what we can, we can offer. And I think every farm, especially biodynamic farms, should have to fulfill that role in society nowadays. This is something I find crucial. Um, so the courses are a way to keep our customers engaged uh, and, and share knowledge throughout the winter months. We have a, a funny business model, you know, with the farm shop and tea room and all of those activities. We, um, we are seasonal, which is actually not funny, is, is the right way to be in a way. So we're not buying products to cook with, to serve to our customers. Uh, we're not buying products to sell in our farm shop. Um, it's always, it has to be produced on the farm, so therefore it's seasonal. So the courses, in a way, start as a means to keep uh, people also engaged throughout the year. So we keep our, our customers uh, engaged in the farm. Um, one of our key programs that we offer is, uh, is an in introduction to biodynamic gardening. And that is a, is a course that is done over six modules um, spread through the year. So really the aim is to 
is to guide people through the seasons. So we start with planning, crop rotation, what is biodynamics and so on. We go from uh, the nursery, glasshouse management and, and um, looking at the planting calendar and all of those aspects. Then we move into compost and cultivation. Um, then once the crops are or have been transplanted, we start looking at natural methods to support uh, vitality and health in the crops, so how to strengthen the, the etheric and, of course, teaching about the preparations. Uh, and then we finish the, the modules looking at seed saving, food preserves, and, and how to store, harvest, and, and all of those aspects. Um, we also offer a, a wide range of courses in the farm, uh, which are special interest days. So to celebrate the wildlife and the biodiversity of the place, so we have a moth evening, for instance. We have a, a morning in early spring when, where, where bird song is the, 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 the highlight of the, of the walk. Um, we're looking at um, butterflies, so we have butterflies events, for instance, as well. So there's a wide range. We also uh, welcoming lots of school children. So we see on the farm really more than a thousand uh, school children come through the farm each year, which is also very much part of what we want to offer. We also offer a biodynamic apprenticeship. So we have uh, two biodynamic apprentices from, from the BDAC, which is the biodynamic college uh, that are with us on a three year long program. And do you make the preparations on site? We do make the preparations on site. Um, we have been, yeah, since the last four years, we made all of them on site, so which is really exciting. And I do, having lived in em at Emerson College for so long, and then have been a standard teacher in Devon, the festivals are very dear to me. Um, and actually in Portugal, they were, they were really important as well, you know, to celebrate the festivals on the farm. And we always, uh, uh, use them as a, as a background as well for the preparation making days, of course, Mikomas and, and, and Easter, namely mm. for, the, for the preparation making. And yeah, I really find that, uh, that the cultural impact is, is, is really crucial. One example I can give you from celebrating the festivals in Portugal, um, as we were in the interior, we were um, in the border with Spain, you know, in the central Portugal. So uh, yeah, really, really interesting region. Um, very strong Catholic uh, impulse, uh, and in a way, the festivals were a means to to engage with the local community. So we would call the the there was a group, a uh, local musical group that played adufe, which is a traditional uh, instrument from that region, and and we would show how we celebrated our festivals, and they would show how they would be celebrating theirs, and it became such an important cultural, social uh, tool for us there, for instance. And the same we do in our farm as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, and which, uh, which calendar do you use? I use Maria Tung's calendar. Um, we, we've been, I've always worked with that one. I'm, I'm, we try to organize all our work around the calendar as much as possible. Um, with time, I, I perhaps when I started Biodynamic Garden, I was, I was uh, quite dogmatic about it. I'm less so. Uh, saying that, as I was mentioning earlier, we do all our planning based on the calendar. And of course, sometimes, you know, there are other factors at play and it's not possible to follow it to, to, to the dot. But generally speaking, we do. And I'm, 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 I find it really exciting, actually, to work with it. Mm-hmm. 
No, and as you know, uh, we were introduced by PKS. I, I reached out to them to see if they'd be open to an interview, and and they said for for an English interview, uh, they recommended uh, you. And it's just been a, a pleasure to to get to meet you and get to know Waltham. And of course, it's a, a beautiful biodynamic estate. That wasn't even the intent when I reached out to PKS. I wanted to to know more about the copper tools. Um, but could you tell us more about the PKS uh, copper tools? Uh, how long have you been using them? Why do you use them? Uh, what makes them different than the steel tools that so many of us use? Sure, absolutely. So I, I have been using personally PKS tools for 18 years now. Um, and my first tool was a, was a shovel, which, I'm, which is standing behind me as we speak, actually. I, I, it's, and it looks almost as new as it, did, as it did 18 years ago, and I've done an awful lot of work. Um, and when I came to Waltham Place four years ago, the Oppenheimer family were also very keen on, 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 on implementation, on, on PKS tools. Um, and um, we, we used to stock some of the tools in our farm shop. So that was a, a nice sort of meeting point as well of something which, that I was already practicing myself. Uh, when the business came up for sale, the implementations, which is the UK distributor of PKS tools, when the business came up for sale, I, I presented to the family. Now, PKS and implementations uh, are at Waltham Place since last February. Um, and if you would like, perhaps I will go a little bit into... I, I mentioned to you in our previous conversation, I'm not a Schauberger specialist, but I think it is really important to, to start by him, if that's all right. And, 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 his, main, and his main motivation... Um, yes, please. And it's really quite interesting. If I look back at his biographies, 1924 was also a crucial year, year for him. You know, it's where um, where he had the opportunity to start presenting um, to, to royalty uh, in Austria uh, his, this whole idea of his logging flume. So, how to, based on his own observations of of nature. How, um, how to move big uh, pieces of timber in the most efficient way as possible. So that's, that's been a, a, an important year for him. He was a forest warden. He was a natural scientist, an inventor, and, and many, made, made many related discoveries in various fields, including forestry, for instance. And hydraulic engineering has been really his, his thing. Um, for, for Schauberger, everything was about um, observation of nature. Um, he, 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 he said so, so many times in so much of his, 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 his writing, um, he really emphasizes that when we're working with the soil, it has to be on the realm of living. Yeah, so um, following, you know, these this, uh, this log flumes and this hydraulic engineering achievements that were... Um, implemented in various parts of Austria. So he was becoming very well known for that. Uh, he had a, a trip to Bulgaria and where he started to look at soil and how depleted soil was um, in, different, in, different, in different areas. Um, and so that's, in a way, that's really the origin of, 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 of his, his work that created PKS. His first observation was that using iron or steel implements to work the soil was something that was detrimental. As I mentioned earlier, uh, everything in nature for him is in, not only for him, but according to his observations, in movement. And there's a constant moving either going towards growth or towards decay. And um, 
according to his observation, if metallic iron is exposed to the to is used, uh, it we will be immediately relating to a process of decay. You know, when exposed metal metallic iron to iron to to water to weather, it will rust. It will decay quite quickly. And, and in contrast to copper, which really it really doesn't. So he did not see much logic of trying to encourage uh, plants to grow using a material that is in a process of decay. Uh, whilst by the observing and working with copper, on the other hand, he realizes a much more stable metal is a noble metal. It doesn't decay in the same way, um, and 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 so we should working be working with copper towards the living process to encourage growth. Secondly, he, he, he had also, um, according to his observation, observations, realized that growth occurs in cooling conditions, so that is in the medium of water, and decay in the element of water, and decay occurs in, in, in warm conditions, you know, so that's one example that one can relate to, for instance, the heat generated in the, in the compost heap. So heat encourages uh, the constituents of the, the, the heap to break down and to be accessible for the next cycle of growth, but it immediately is a process of decay at first. So iron has greater frictional resistance than, crop, than copper. So which means if you're plowing uh, using an iron, uh, the plowshare it is dragged to the soil and the soil will heat up. Uh, while copper alloy, bronze which is much smoother so has less frictional resistance so it's a colder process so again he thought by working with a copper plow you're encouraging you know this colder growth processes to be to be occurring and another aspect of his observation that is that iron is a sparking metal is a spark is is a, in a way a loss of energy you know every is a discharge and, and he believed as well, according to his groundwater uh, experiments and, and, and work. So by observing how ground, groundwater makes way to the surface, it does acquire a weak electrical charge. So this charge is part of our plants are being nourished on. Um, and he described that using iron, tool, iron tools depletes the groundwater, you know, leaving uh, of this charge which leaving less uh, for the plants. So copper is a non-sparking metal, so there is no loss of energy in this way. Um, what else I can talk about? My personal relationship to the tools. I find the tools, um, I find that they're designed. Um, they are not, you know, iron tools, sometimes they are very, very um, easy to read. You know what you need to do with the tool. They often require a lot of strength. They are heavy tools to work with. The copper are much lighter. But um, some of the PKS designs, I, at first, I did not quite, you know, I did not quite understand them. So the, the, the Phoenix hole, the Pollux hole, for instance, they had quite a strange shape and a prong and, or two prongs. And so in a way, there are tools that they invite the, the, the person who is using the gardener to, to dialogue with them. And you need to really um, learn the different ways of working with it, the different uses. And once you do, uh, actually, gardening becomes such an efficient and, and light work. And it, this, is, this is, I'm not trying to sell the tools, you know, this is really 
my personal experience and I always feel that in a way the tools are teaching me how to garden. So that really, um, this aspect of dialogue, I think it's extremely important. Excellent. No, I mean, they are recognized as the, the highest standard in, in hand uh, garden tools. So it's interesting to hear someone who's had 18 years experience with them speak, speak on them. So thank you very much. Pleasure, pleasure. Um, with one of another aspect of the tools that a lot of people talk about, Will, and, 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 and I think it's important to mention, which is the, the whole aspect of slugs and snails uh, uh, control, you know, prevention in the garden. Um, at Waltham, we, we always like to emphasize, you know, being a biodiversity haven that every creature has got a role to play. So actually, the ecological role of slugs and snails is, is, is massive. It's really important as uh, in the ecological chain, the food chain for small mammals, for, for birds, you know, especially snails. There's a source of calcium for, for many, many uh, creatures. Uh, but we all have had the experience of as well planting a whole lettuce crop and everything disappearing. So, um, so I, 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 people ring us and ask, well, really, do, do the copper tools uh, stop uh, the, the slugs and snails? I want all of them. It's not quite like that. In our experience of working with it, it does have an impact. And the insights that I'll share with you, they are from Jane Scobold. And Jane uh, worked with PKS from the very beginning. You know, Jane, she set up um, implementations in the UK 20, 20 years ago. And through her own research, she, 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 she came up with, with, the, with this picture that I will share with you, um, which relates to the Earth's magnetic field. Of course, we live in it. And this magnetic field is sustained by the movement of the iron content in the Earth's mantle. Yeah? Any piece of iron uh, has its own magnetic field, while copper, on the other hand, is non-magnetic and it's highly electric, electrically conductive. Um, all mammals have iron, we have iron in our blood, so that's what determines the color of our blood. That's why our blood is red. It enables each of us to have our own independent magnetic field, which is quite interestingly anchored on our blood. Yeah. Uh, slugs and snails, on the other hand, they do not have iron on their blood. Their blood contains hemocyanin, um, which proteins that transport oxygen to the bodies of these invertebrate animals. And those proteins, they contain copper. So that's something that is, that is, that is quite interesting. So that means that they do not have an independent magnetic field. So slugs and snails, they are highly sensitive to Earth's magnetic field, according to, to James' observation. And as they move along the ground, they are subject to the lines of the magnetic force which is obviously being generated by the rotating core of the Earth. So, um, in a way, by, by, um, when we're working uh, with the garden tools, as the tool turns the soil, as we work with the soil, um, uh, the iron tool, in contrast to the copper, the iron tool, uh, uh, it's left with this magnetic signature, and um, so that these lugs, in a way, follow, they follow that. Uh, and by using copper, um, they don't know where to go because we're breaking that signal mm. between the earth magnetic field and the iron tools. We're breaking those pathways. So they, they, there's a disturbance and the slugs don't quite know how to, how to move themselves. So by transplanting 
plants with a copper tool, you're creating that disturbance around that magnetic field, which the iron wouldn't. So that, in a way, uh, will keep the uh, slugs and snails away from, from the plants. And some gardeners really report a uh, high success rate. Um, of course, it all depends on the environment where one is uh, working, depends on the whole aspect of biodiversity and how much in equilibrium that environment is. Um, but yeah, some people are reporting really good results with that. Very interesting. Uh, thank you for that additional piece. I hadn't heard that before. Sure. Well, thank you, Andre. Um, and looking forward to some of these courses coming up. Again, uh, Celebration of Copper Tools is on uh, July 16th at Waltham. Uh, and of course, uh, look into the full six-part biodynamic course that they're offering. That sounds great as well. Um, you can find Andre and Waltham Place at waltonplace.com and of course the Biodynamic Guild at biodynamicguild.org. Thanks again, Andre. Pleasure. Thank you very much.